The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome, everyone. Welcome in the name of Jesus Christ to all of you here this morning and everybody watching online. Of course, we're thinking of the Mullicans this morning, and I'm just grateful for each and every one of your faces and all of you that are tuning in and visitors. I hope you feel welcome this morning. I hope you'll find a friendly face to talk to and get connected with. And also college students uh, that are here, I wanted to let you know about a couple of uh, college events happening. So the first one is lunch today, free lunch, uh, which is happening at Johnny's over by OC on 33rd. So that'll be college class today is free lunch at Johnny's. Head on over there if you're a college student or can pass for a college student, there's a free lunch for you. And another thing is we're going to have a college worship night. The next one on the books is going to be October 19th. That's a Tuesday night. And we're actually going to be having that at Wes and Delisa McKenzie's house. So that's right over near the Oklahoma Christian campus. That's going to be at 8, 630. Uh, I believe actually we're going to do 830. We'll get that to you. But that's October 19th at Tuesday at Wes and Delisa McKenzie's house. I hope you'll spread the word around campus, let them know, and we're excited for an awesome night of intimate worship that Tuesday night. We also begin this morning a brand new sermon series. I'm glad you're with us this morning as we begin our study of the book of James. We're going to be in James this morning and then six more Sundays. So I'm glad you're with us for the beginning here as we start in James chapter 1 verses 1 through 8 this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we give thanks this morning for you and for your word. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this text and that we would receive that wisdom that you give so generously. God, give us not only the ears to hear, but the hearts to follow and the bodies to obey. Lord, we give thanks. And I ask you for the gift of preaching. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. I read Lara, my sermon text, this past week. And when I looked over 
after I'd finished reading verses one through eight, there was a kind of pained expression on her face. After talking to her, I learned this expression, I think, which is not unique to her, is that these words are hard. Good, good words, but challenging. And in fact, there's a Bible study project that makes overview videos of all the books of the Bible. It's called The Bible Project, and it's on uh, YouTube. They've got some great resources there. And I was watching the video for the book of James, and at the very end of it, they say that James is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut, which is exactly what it is. It's a powerful, wonderful book. It's challenging. It's hard. Probably some of the hardest words in the New Testament aside from the Sermon on the Mount. And that makes sense because James draws heavily on the teachings of Jesus and specifically the Sermon on the Mount as we're going to see. James draws not only on the book of Proverbs and the Old Testament prophets, but especially on the teachings of Jesus. There's some hard words. But hard words can be an instrument of mercy in the hands of a loving God. So I hope we'll have open hearts and ears throughout this series for the challenging but important words of the book of James. And maybe some of the very hardest are right here in verse two. Right, it says, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. There's a French theologian with a wonderful French name, Henri de Lubac, and he's got this little book called Paradoxes of Faith, and there's a chapter in that book called Suffering, and he writes this about suffering. He says, all suffering is unique, and all suffering is common. I have to be reminded of the latter truth when I am suffering myself, and of the former when I see others suffering. When we suffer, we often think that no one has been through anything even remotely similar ever before. We, we think there is nothing common to our experience of suffering. We need to be reminded that all suffering is common. But I think when we look at the suffering of others, we have a tendency to go the other way and forget that all suffering is uniquely painful to that person. They're not experiencing it as a repetition or something common. They're experiencing it in a unique way. And so one of the challenges about preaching a text that involves trials and hardship and suffering is that all of us have been through trials. We've all endured hardship and suffering, but we've all endured it in different ways. We've experienced suffering of different kind and intensity, magnitude and context. But James knows this. James knows and he says, trials of various kinds, any kind of trial, he says, consider it nothing but joy. Well, before we dive deeper, I want you to be sure of who is speaking to you this morning. And I don't mean myself, I mean James, I mean this book, right? It says in verse one, James, a servant, a slave of Christ. And James was a very common name in the first century, but we've always had the tradition of attributing this to James, the brother of Jesus. 
And if indeed this is James, Jesus' brother, writing to us, then this is a man very well acquainted with grief. This is a man who watched his brother be tried and convicted wrongly and tortured and publicly shamed and executed. This is the James that the rest of the New Testament tells us became the head of the Jerusalem church, the original first Christian community. And that was a church that experienced a lot of hardship in the first two decades after Christ, right? There was famine we know about. We know that there was persecution. This is a man who has experienced great trials. The audience of this book was well acquainted with grief. Living in the first century, coming all the way us to the 21st, I have to imagine they experienced trials that some of us probably can't even wrap our minds around. So I want you to know that the words of James this morning do not come cheaply. This is hard-won wisdom in the book of James. But still, what sense can we make of these words? Let's read verses two through four one more time. It says, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. What are we reading here? Consider trials nothing but joy? Trials are usually anything but joy. What are we reading here? Is this some kind of denial stage of grief? Is James kind of telling us to just whistle in the dark and pretend things aren't as bad as they really are? Is this some kind of ancient self-help text, a kind of first century Tony Robbins or Elizabeth Gilbert, somebody trying to kind of help us pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, make lemonade out of lemons. What are we reading here? Where is this coming from? Well, we can't answer that last question. I, I think we do know where this is coming from. As I alluded earlier, we don't have to turn very far back in the New Testament, just to the very beginning in the book of Matthew, to find that James is drawing directly here from the Sermon on the Mount and particularly from the Beatitudes, where Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecutions. Jesus says, rejoice, be glad, blessed are you. Is it that simple? I don't think so. And here's why. I want to take the words of Jesus here, the teachings of Jesus, as seriously as I want to take the life and experiences of Jesus. And the very Jesus who tells us, rejoice when you're suffering is the Jesus who later in Matthew, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew will say that he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Yet not what I want, but what you want. I am deeply grieved even to death. I think we can say from James and from Jesus that Jesus knows this suffering thing is no joyride. And I think we can say further what James 1 emphatically is not. This is not a command to be Christian optimists. And I say that as someone given to optimism. This is not a Christian command to optimism. This is not a command to ignore things when they're bad. This is not one of the seven habits of highly effective people. But here's what I think James 1 really is telling us. I think it's telling us that trials can bring us to communion and conformity with Christ. Trials can be a place where we can experience the deepest communion with Christ possible. The Jesus who found solidarity with sinners and sufferers. The Jesus who who descended into the flesh is the one that we can meet when we experience that flesh in its greatest vulnerability and its deepest suffering. Trials can be a place where we commune with Jesus deeply. And so, trials can be a place where we begin to be shaped into his image. That's our mission here at the Springs, is to be a people of God transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. Suffering and hardship and trials are one of the places where we are most conformed into the image of Jesus. They can be a place where we begin to be shaped into his image. Because the God that we know in Jesus Christ is the God who takes Good Friday and makes it Easter Sunday. And that's not to ignore the horrors of Good Friday. But the God who can take those horrors and make them new creation is the God who can use trials to bring us to endurance and maturity and, as James will say, wholeness, completion, lacking nothing. In his little book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis has this wonderful analogy. He draws us back to uh, that image from the prophets of God as the potter and us as the clay. Right? He draws us back to that image of God as artist and us as the artwork. And in his book, C.S. Lewis draws this analogy out. He says that if an artist doesn't really care all that much for a work of art, right? If it's just a little doodle that he's doing maybe to amuse a child or something he doesn't care all that much about, he'll let it go and not care what state it's in. But for a masterpiece, for a magnum opus, for a masterwork, their life's work, an artist will trouble that work over and over again, right? They will stew over and over again. And and Lewis writes, he says, you know, imagining that if this work of art were sentient, if it were conscious, he says, one can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the 10th time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, 
It is natural for us to wish that God had designed us for a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then, we are wishing not for more love, but for less. It is not God's intention to harm us. But we do believe that God can take the friction and pain of our lives and make those brush strokes on our canvas of Christ. We do believe that somehow, mysteriously, miraculously, God can take trials and conform us more deeply into the image of that perfect masterwork, Jesus Christ. We've talked a bit about what James 1 is not. We've talked a bit about what it is, and I want to add one little caveat of what it shouldn't be. And that is this. Let's not let James 1 be our default canned response to anyone in the midst of trials. Amen? There may be truth in James 1, and there may be truth even for that person down the road. But if anything, we need to lean less heavily on James 1, 2, and more heavily on Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. There are moments where spewing James 1, 2 is not the case. We ought to be instead doing Galatians 6, 2. Right, that, that to bring James 1-2 into that moment for that person in that place of sorrow would be to make their burdens heavier rather than to carry them. We pray that God will use trials to bring about wholeness. But let us lean heavily on Galatians 6-2 in those moments. So then James gets to the next few verses, and he's just talked to us about being whole and complete and not lacking anything, and then he gets more specific with something that we may be lacking and how we might ask for it. So let's go to verses five through eight as we continue this morning. He says, if any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. But ask in faith, never doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. I think there's more going on here than this translation of the word doubt. Uh, Because when we hear doubt, uh, we tend to think of more in kind of terms of rationality, right? This questioning of an assent to Christian beliefs. And I don't think that's exactly what James is getting at this morning. I don't think he's shaming anyone who's ever wondered about the rationality of those beliefs or even questioned them. What James really seems to be getting at, this word could more be translated as dividedness, right? Or kind of at variance with oneself. I've even seen it translated as hesitate, right? So James seems to be getting more at this kind of single-minded loyalty he wants us to have to God. And we see this even more when he uses that word double-minded, right? James says that we ought not to be double-minded because we won't 
receive anything from the Lord. This idea of double-minded is basically an idea in Judaism that there's good and bad in everyone, right? That we can be at variance with ourselves. And we see this in Israel, right? We see that Israel is often devoted to God, but also devoted to these idols, right? They're seeking God's will, but also kind of seeking their own will. And so James wants to guard against that dividedness, that being at variance, right, or hesitating in our trust in God to provide. James wants us not to hesitate, but to trust in single-minded devotion that God can provide for us. And then he uses this image of a wave, right? And I love this wave image, this kind of instability that he's trying to invoke. Because in our English language, there's a wonderful connection between the word wave and the word waver or wavering, right? And in fact, the King James Version, which I rarely ever quote from from this pulpit, actually captures this really beautifully in in verses six through eight. It says, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering, For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. To be a wave is to be wavering, right? Is to have this instability rather than devotion and trust in God. So what is the remedy here, right? What is James asking us to do instead? Well, this word double-minded, he's gonna use it one more time in the book. In chapter four, James is gonna say that God gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The cure for double-mindedness, for hesitation, for dividedness, is humility, is drawing near to God, the God who gives grace to the humble. And I love this imagery of of humility because it's about lowliness, right? And to transpose James' image of a wave into our context, we could say that James is telling us not to be a wave but to ride the waves, right? To, To surf even. Because in surfing, when you're on a wave, one of the techniques you need is to have that low center of gravity, right? It's this kind of humility that draws us near to God, that puts our center of gravity in something stable, in the lowly Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's in imitating the humility of Jesus, the Jesus who throws himself on the ground in the garden, that we come down and find our center of gravity, and that we can really ride waves of doubt in humble faith. Humble faith can ride waves of doubt. In being humble, we are yet again conforming to Christ. We are imitating that Savior who suffered 
on our behalf. And James tells us that this is the way to single-minded loyalty and trust in God. It's the way of imitating the lowly Savior. In fact, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard puts it like this. He says, without a life of imitation of following Christ, it is impossible to gain mastery over doubts. Venture to give all your possessions to the poor, and you will certainly experience the truth of Christ's teaching. Venture once to make yourself completely vulnerable for the sake of the truth, and you will certainly experience the truth of Christ's word. It is this act of single-minded devotion and humility, of imitation of Christ, that we are finally able to trust in God through the trials, through the suffering. And James tells us that we are to consider these trials nothing but joy because they can lead to our wholeness and perfection. We talked earlier of this image of God as potter, us as clay. Right? This image of God as artist, us as art. And I couldn't help but think of Lauren Winner. In one of her books, she talks about this Japanese art form called kintsugi. And kintsugi is the idea that instead of discarding something that's broken or trying to disguise its brokenness, that rather that brokenness can actually be woven into the beauty and history of that object. And so when a bowl or a piece of pottery is broken, they will put it back together with this gold powder and lacquer, right, to weave into it these beautiful golden veins that show the object's history of fracturedness and yet add to its overall beauty. James is telling us this morning that the fractures in our finite lives can be lacquered into wholeness through God's love. James is telling us that somehow in our very fractured and broken state, the God who can take Good Friday and make it Easter Sunday is the God who can somehow use those trials and suffering to bring us to wholeness and completion. A beauty we could scarcely imagine this side of eternity. That is God's promise. God's promise that the lowly Savior who throws himself on the ground in humility is the one who can carry us through life's trials to that wholeness and completion of perfect, eternal joy. When we really will say that God is good and that we rejoice because he has brought us through to completion and the kind of wholeness that only the eternal, perfect God can bring. Church, maybe there's some of you here this morning that are broken. You're just feeling completely fractured. Or you're walking with loved ones through a fractured time. Maybe you've been broken for a long time. And you can scarcely imagine how God could possibly weave that into any kind of redemption. 
only the God of Jesus Christ who will endure the horrors of the cross and lead that to new creation and resurrection is the God who can make you whole once again. Is the God who can bring you to fullness and completion and beauty. Church, let us stand and access that joy and grace even now and praise the God of Jesus Christ.